Our gospel reading this morning comes from John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. In your pew Bible, it's found on page 901. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The very word of God. Good morning. You hear me okay? Um, So it's not a distraction. Tom Schlitt astutely observed this morning I have this Band-Aid on the side of my nose. And no, Tom, it's not a failed attempt at a nose piercing. (laughs) I had a basal cell removed this week, and I've got to keep this on for a month while it heals, so just to set the record straight. Uh, here we are. Do you realize we turned, we turned the calendar today and now are in July, and now we are in the second half of 2018 already. It's kind of fitting, though, that uh, we're looking at, continuing to look at this parable today as we come into the height of the growing season in southern Indiana. I had a laugh this week. If, if you ever want to kind of give yourself a morning wake-up jolt, tur- tune in to Ron Rhodes and Charlie Stocker. All right, morning news. So Ron reports this week that we we're eight inches over the average rainfall for the season, which then Charlie reports means that we've got weeds choking out our garden, we've got bugs eating up our tomato plants, and we've got brown patch fungus invading our lawns. Now, only Charlie Stocker can describe brown patch and make it be like entertainment, you know? So you think about the season that we're in that is full of produce and growing and with it all the things that come with that, the challenges of fruitful harvests. And and we come to this parable that we've been in for the last few weeks, the parable of the sower, or you can think of it as the parable of the soils. Um, Remember the setting, Jesus is teaching along and around the Sea of Galilee. And in this particular setting, crowds have followed him, and he was so pressed by the crowds that he got into a boat and and just went offshore a little bit. And you might think, well, how in the world would you talk to people on the shore from that kind of setting? But in fact, especially those of you who've just come back from Israel, there is an area on the north side of the Sea of Galilee where the shoreline swoops up into kind of an amphitheater, a natural hillside slope. And in fact, you can sit there in a boat on the beach and speak, and crowds of people will hear that like you were in an amphitheater, and that's what Jesus was doing. He tells the parable of the soil straight away, and then his disciples go to him and say, why are you talking in those strange parables? What 
why do you do that? And Jesus went on to explain about the mystery of God's word and who would have ears to hear it and who would not. And he called the disciples blessed because they had ears to hear and they were going to be able to understand this word. So Jesus then, they said, well, we need to understand this better. And so Jesus goes on to explain the parable of the soils. And what I want us to concentrate on today as we come to the concluding part of this parable is Matthew 13, verse 23. And I think you'll find that on page 3, excuse me, page 818 in the Pew Bible. So let's just, as our memory verse this week, let's read this scripture uh, together. Join me when you're ready here. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of God. Pray with me, would you? God, we're grateful for this day. We're, we're thankful for the community of people around us who represent you and your, and your body in our community. We're thankful that we can be in the cool of this sanctuary and in freedom. Uh, bring your word, teach your word, and receive your word without threat. And so our prayer today, God, is that we would receive your word as seed and that that seed in each of us would be fruitful in the lives that we lead. So we commit now our time and our attention to you and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You just can't beat the flavor of fresh herbs when you're cooking, can you? But it's just so annoying to me when I want to go cook with fresh herbs. I'd have to go to Schnucks and pay four bucks for two sprigs of rosemary. It just gets to me. So over the last few years in my household, we have decided we're going to grow our own herbs. And so I went to Lowe's and bought an herb box a few years ago. And that box is about yay big this way and yay big that way. It's probably about 10 inches deep. Now the instructions that came with the box gave very specific instructions on how to do this right. There was a formula for the soil. You have to use 1.5 cubic feet of potting mix, not Garden soil, not topsoil, not peat moss, potting mix, because that's the kind of thing you use in container gardening, I learned. Then you've got to add a cup of lime layered in just a certain way, and then you've got to trench in two to three cups of granular fertilizer in just a certain way. And then you take a big piece of heavy-duty plastic and you wrap that whole box over the top and rubber band it on so it stays real taut. Now, of course, after the first year, the rubber band broke, so now it gets tied on with two big bungee cords and a whole bunch of duct tape. (laughs) Once you get it all set up, then you can break through the plastic and plant your herbs, and they go in about four inches deep. And so that's what happened about the second week in May, and had about three different pots of herbs, mostly basil and rosemary, and you plant that things in those little, you know how they are when you first get them, those puny, puny little stalks. Went out this week and measured the basil, and those puppies are two feet tall. And they're just overflowing with leaves. In fact, there's so many, we can't use them all up. One household can't use all those leaves up, so we're giving them away. And then, of course, you know, the more you cut them back, the more they grow. And the more you cut them back, the more they grow. And so this year, 
there will be an abundance of basil and rosemary in my household. We don't have to be a farmer to know how important good soil conditions are to crop yield, though, do we? Even a suburban wannabe gardener like me has learned that lesson. I am a firm believer in the special soil formula they recommended for the herb box. I've seen the evidence of what just the right soil can deliver in yield. So, so whether we're farmers or not, the parable of the soils rings absolutely true, doesn't it? We know that seed planted in poor soil won't produce anywhere near the yield you get when you can plant in rich, good, cultivated soil. In that passage in Matthew, Jesus explains the parable and makes it clear that good soil is really referring to a good heart, a heart receptive to him and his word. And just like good soil is needed for good crop yields, so a good heart is needed to be a fruitful follower of Jesus. And that brings us to the two questions we want to look at today from this passage. What kind of fruit does a cultivated heart yield? And how? How do we cultivate a heart that can yield a hundredfold and sixtyfold and thirtyfold? What fruit does a cultivated heart yield? You know, what had to be striking to the first hearers of the parable was the size of the yield produced from the good soil. In that day, a normal grain yield might have been eight to tenfold of what you planted. What Jesus described would have been an incredible harvest, even, well, probably in our day, even bigger than the great zucchini tsunami that is soon to come upon us, right? Come July and August, county, over 15 counties surrounding southern Indiana, all the home gardeners are going to have harvests of zucchini. So much so, in fact, that they'll have used every single recipe they could find on how to make use of that zucchini, including adding it to their morning oatmeal. There'll be so much zucchini that workplaces around the area will have break rooms full of bags of zucchini with signs on it. Help yourself, right? Help yourself. Roadside stands are going to start giving it away. Think abundance. Think abundance. How is it that tiny little seeds that look like nothing can get transformed into that kind of yield? Think of what the abundance started with. A little tiny seed, a nothing amount of something, is planted in good soil, watered, maybe fertilized a little. Somehow it germinates down there in the dark. Then suddenly it breaks out and sprouts and grows up into something that gives us all the things that we know. Rosemary, basil, zucchini, tomatoes, strawberries, blueberries, all the kinds of things that nourish us. Not to mention seeds that germinate and produce beautiful flowers that delight our senses and trees that grow up big and throw shade and yield things like Bing cherries that are some of my favorites. It's amazing what life potential there is in seed, isn't there? When Jesus talked about good soil and big yields, he was referring to people who not only hear the gospel message, the seed, but understand it and allow that message to take full and deep root in their heart. And when it does, the crop that can be generated can hardly be contained. Jesus' interpretation, though, of the parable doesn't leave us a whole lot of wiggle room. Only the hearts, he says, that are receptive to his message will produce the fruit of kingdom life. And it's the fruit of someone's life that's evidence that they're truly a child of the kingdom. 
So what is being produced from the seeds of the gospel planted in us as believers? What is the evidence that transformation is occurring? We know that being transformed into the likeness of Christ is going to be a lifelong process. Along the way, what are the signs that something is happening? Look first within with me. A cultivated heart, a heart being shaped by the work of the Holy Spirit, yields an inner beauty. An inner beauty. What? I'm not talking about Estee Lauder beauty or, you know, girly kind of beauty. I'm talking about inner goodness. A month or so ago, I had the opportunity to catch up with Hillary Merwin over coffee. She, Hillary was in town visiting, and I think she met with our mission team people. For those of you who don't maybe know Hillary, she was a member here of her, at the church with her family, and I think she might have come help me, maybe middle school age, and was here middle school, high school, and then she went on to college at Belmont in Nashville. And along the way, she developed this heart for missions, and she acquired the skill to be able to speak Spanish fluently. In time, she ended up uh, agreeing to take a call to serve in Bogota, Colombia, where she's been, I think, about four years now. When we were talking over coffee, I really avidly read her newsletters and try to stay in touch with what she's doing. And and when I listened to her talk when we were meeting, she was just saying, you know, what a tough thing it is in another country to be able to minister. And she works with a tough population. She, She works with young kids, young girls especially, who maybe have been into drugs, maybe have lived the street life, come from broken families, and and the arrangement was they kind of lived together in one place, and then there's a lot of drama associated with that. So she's really, really challenged. One of the things, though, that really impressed me about her is she is a woman who, young woman, that, that, who's rooted herself in God's word. It's clear. And she roots herself in prayer and community. And it's so clear she's just growing so much and maturing in her faith. She's someone who has a genuine love for the people that she serves. In many cases, she's serving and loving people that are not, or who are not, easy to love. And she's determined to continue to share God's love with the young woman she ministers to. It's such a contrast to me. Here's this kind-hearted, soft-spoken young woman facing this tough environment to minister in. And my impulse, my impulse is to want to shield her from that. Just don't go back. Let somebody else do that. She just went back for another term, at least another year, maybe more. A heart like hers, a heart that loves God, loves the Colombian people, loves goodness, is beautiful. And I see in her, at such a young age, a beautiful example of just how the Holy Spirit transforms a receptive heart into the likeness of Christ. And the Apostle, or the Saint Paul describes this so nicely the, he, the evidence of a heart that's been cultivated by the Holy Spirit sounds like this the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, help me peace, patience kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness and self-control these are the qualities that emerge in us as we grow and mature as our hearts are transformed A transformed heart reflects the heart of God in such a winsome way others are drawn to him. I see that winsome heart in Hillary, and frankly, I want to grow up to be like her. She's so open, and she's so receptive to the spirit working in her heart. 
as the Holy Spirit does that work of transformation, then the Spirit kind of stirs and motivates, starts to motivate us to move out beyond ourselves and look to how we might influence the world we live in. So in a cultivated heart, yields something more. yields a desire to fulfill both the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And we don't have to go to foreign shores to do that, do we? The Great Commission understanding we've long had around here is that the places we're called to influence are those that we encounter in our everyday going, right? In our homes, in our work, the places we play. I'll have to tell you, I have been really thinking a lot about our friend Dave Wilson here these last few weeks. Um, I've been uh, in the workplace for over 40 years, and I know the workplace is one of the most difficult mission fields around. I don't know if you would nod your head in agreement with that or not, but it can be difficult. So I called Marianne and I talked to her and I said, you know, this is what's been on my mind and I, I hope you are okay if I share this, what these impressions. And she talked to me and, and so I'm going to do that today. I told Marianne that I was just so struck by the turnout and the presence of the guys from Vectron around the time of Dave's, around the time of Dave's passing. I saw guys standing in long, long visitation lines at Alexander's. And then I saw guys pack this sanctuary and park, park their rigs all out here. A lot of those guys were young, young faces. And I said, Marianne, what was that? What was I seeing the evidence of in that turnout, that response to Dave? Well, she talked about things that I didn't know firsthand, but I'm going to tell you what I heard through Marianne. She said, Dave had a passion for his work. He had a passion for his work, and he had a love for the people he worked with. Now, think about that. Imagine a big, tough-knuckled guy who worked on high-voltage power lines loving his tough, probably rough-talking, and probably rough-living co-workers. Really? Isn't that kind of soft? Isn't that kind of girly to love your co-workers? Hear what Jesus said when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor including your co-workers, even your most difficult co-workers, you shall love them as yourself, and Dave did. Dave apprenticed a lot of young men, and his own passion for his work, for a good job, for safety, for things to be done right, led him to be the best and then expect the best from those who apprenticed under him. He cut the young guys no slack, I'm told. I kind of heard that about Ellen Lynch, too. She didn't cut those young nurses any slack. (laughs) That's because Dave and Ellen wanted those young people to be really good at what they did. And in Dave's case, I think he didn't want to see these young guys in any way put themselves at risk. Think, for goodness sakes, what they're doing. They're handling high-voltage electric. 
So yeah, I think it was tough love that Dave shared, but I also suspect it was probably laced with pranks and practical jokes. Oh yeah, yeah. This is the evidence of a part in the workplace that's influencing the people around you. Dave wasn't shy about putting his heart for God on display openly on the job. People could see he operated off of a moral compass. He was visibly generous with people, in some cases sacrificially so. And it was obvious his family was important to him, and it was obvious his faith was important to him, and it was obvious he was a disciple of Jesus, and he found ways to influence the guys around him on the job. Tough guy, lineman. Marianne told me that many of Dave's veteran co-workers have become family to the Wilsons. And I believe in time, some of those tough guy line workers may just come to join the bigger family of God, thanks to the seed Dave planted. So to me, Dave was a really good example of someone who in his going lived out both great commission and great commandment. And he was alert to the opportunity to impact the people and places that were within his range of influence. So it can be for every one of us here, right? We all have a range of influence that we may uniquely be equipped to impact for Christ. Hillary is uniquely equipped for cross-cultural ministry in Bogota. I am not. My Spanish wouldn't get me to first base. And maybe my heart wouldn't either. We don't have to travel to a foreign country. There are plenty of mission fields right here in the good old U.S. of A., and many of those are deeply cross-cultural in these days, aren't they? Jesus said genuine followers of his would be known by the fruit they produce. Not all are going to produce the same kind of fruit, and not all are going to produce the same kind of yield. But he expects all of us followers to be fruitful for his kingdom. So how do we do that? How do we cultivate a receptive and fruitful heart, one that can yield that good and abundant fruit? You know, over the last year during our studies, in the, the, there are two things, the good and beautiful God and the good and beautiful life. We were, life, we were um, encouraged to practice soul training exercises. You remember that? Soul training exercises are those practices we can do to plow up the soil of our heart and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Let's kind of just remember a few of them here. There's one that just struck me and has stayed with me. I'm going to frame it this way. I'm going to say the first thing we need to practice is falling in love with the God Jesus knows. Let that sink in. Falling in love with the God Jesus knows. A lot of us carry around ideas and beliefs about God that are a misrepresentation of who God really is. In the book, they were called false narratives, things that are, we believe but they're not really true. Like, for example, God is an angry judge, and if you do well, you'll be blessed, and if you sin, you'll be punished. And so people can be fearful to approach God. Yet Jesus knew God as Abba, Papa. Good father. Jesus' teaching was rooted in such an intimate knowledge of his father, he could share the heart of the father, and when people heard that news, they heard it as good news, right? <laughs> it's interesting, Jesus' good news can be summed up in this one sentence Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
Now, people often think repent means shape up or else. So they think Jesus' proclamation is a threat, but it's really an invitation. The Greek word for repent is metanoia. We've heard that here before, which means to change your mind, or maybe said another way, to change the way you look at life. Jesus invites us to change the way we think about this life and know that a life of intimacy and interaction with God is just not possible. It's available now, right here in our midst. The kingdom of God, he says, is near. And isn't it interesting that people who heard that message in Jesus' day took it as such good news, he had a hard time escaping the crowds. To tell that parable, he had to get in a boat and put offshore because the people surrounded him were just so, uh, the crowds were so large. Now, you just don't fall in love with a stranger, right? So falling in love assumes a relationship. And so there are practical things we can do to grow our relationship with God and through that cultivate a more receptive and fruitful heart. First, let's just talk about examining our own heart. Do some self-reflection. You know, Once people come to know the God Jesus knows, they are more ready to take a look in the mirror and examine their own heart. They can trust that God won't reject them. So a step in cultivating a receptive heart is to ask ourselves, what's the condition of my heart? Like Kristen was talking about earlier, is it hard pan, like you find on the golf course, that nothing would grow on? Is it choked with weeds? Like soil, our hearts need to be worked up and amended, fertilized and watered. So take time regularly for self-reflection and pray the Holy Spirit would loosen the hardness or clear out the weeds to make your heart receptive, like Hillary then connect to the source of life. No better instruction about this than what Marianne read in John 15 when Jesus tells his disciples to abide in him and he in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus is that source of life, the vine, and we are so dependent on that for his life source. Regular times of prayer, times of solitude and silence and just getting away from the noise of our day and the distractions of our times are important ways to stay connected with the source of life and ways of getting to know God better. Intimacy with God comes when we spend time with him. And then immerse yourself in God's word. Scripture reveals God, right? In these inspired writings, we can find ourselves, uh, we can find answers to our questions about who God is and what his purposes for us in this life are. We come to know God better as we take in what he has revealed about himself. In 1 John 4, 8, there's a really familiar passage. Let me just quickly read this. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So since God is love, then we might be able to go over to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And let's just read it in this way, thinking that love flows from God. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God is not rude. God is not self-seeking or easily angered, keeps no record of wrong. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. You know, immersing ourselves in the word helps us to know and love this God. 
this good and beautiful God, as the book said, and can then inspire us to be a follower of Christ and to be able to genuinely sing the words of that song we just sang earlier, Change My Heart, O God, May I Be Like You. You know, another thing that to me is just um, so important to really cultivate a, a fruitful heart, and that is a deepening commitment to the community of God's people. The process of transformation is lifelong. Make no mistake about that. The journey is going to take twists and turns that could discourage or dishearten a solo traveler. The community of believers, this room full of people, the body of Christ, needs all of us taking our place for the whole organism to function properly. Community is the place where you can continue to build intimacy with God through worship and hearing the word taught where you can be encouraged to keep up with your soul training practices and disciple-making practices, and you can encourage others to do the same. And it's a safe place to be held accountable for fulfilling God's purposes for your life. That's the last, that's the last practice I want to talk, talk about, deepening your commitment to God's purpose for your life. Whatever, in whatever season or, or circumstance you may find yourself in, uh, I have another person that just comes to mind when I think about God's purpose for our life and seeking that and following through on that. And that, that's our friend, Keith Hefley, who many of you may know and some of you have heard us talk about. Keith and his wife, Elma, have been longtime friends of people in this community and they used to attend here periodically. Um, for those of you who don't know Keith, just some quick background. Keith is a Presbyterian pastor, has been for many, many years, and he did some of his early ministry work in Scotland. There he met Elma, his wife. Um, they did work together in Scotland, and they came to the States somewhere in the mid-60s. And they landed, they landed in inner-city Detroit in the era of all the racial tension and riots that were going on. And so they're, they're, they ministered and they worked in urban inner-city Detroit and had their kids there. And then somehow or other... Somehow or other, they were called to an outpost in southwest Indiana called New Harmony. So here they pack up and go from an urban setting like Detroit down to the rural little burg of New Harmony, and there served at the Barn Abbey for years and years. And that's where I met Keith. There were countless numbers of young people ministered to out of that ministry um, through adventure and challenge weekends, and Keith and Elma both spent many, many years uh, days and years of their lives in that location. The ministry in New Harmony then moved to Evansville, and it was called Barnabas and continued on for a while. And Keith finally passed the baton for Barnabas on and stayed so active, serving Curcio Tres Dias teams. He's been pastor to many pastors, including our own. And along the way, oh, by the way, he wrote three books, three books. He's a man who every stage of life sought God's purpose for his life, and it took him a lot of different places. And the last place it took him, the most recent place I should say it took him, was a place I don't think he ever would have chose, put it that way. Um, his most recent call was to be caregiver to Elma as she faced a very difficult stage of her life. Um, just a little background about Elma. Barb and I and another number of women were in a small group together for years, so I got to know Elma through that, and uh, she was just this brilliant woman, just brilliant, witty Scottish woman, and uh, 
we would laugh because I would, we'd ask her, Alma, tell us again, what was your degree in? She, I think, went to the University in, of Edinburgh, and it was a degree in logic and metaphysics. And I'd say, Alma, tell me what that means. <laughs> and then, you know, time would go by, and the subject would come up again. <laughs> I couldn't remember the name of the degree, much less what it was. But it, I will tell you this. She was just a, a brilliant woman with a lot of wit, with a lot of heart, she uh, had a gift of hospitality. She was cook. She was mom. She served in mops for many years. Some of you may have met her there. She was a delight. And somehow, in some time in the past seven to eight years, things began to change. We began to sense that something wasn't right. Elma uh, was not herself. And what eventually emerged was a diagnosis of dementia, along with a lot of other physical side effects that took most of her abilities away and, and, and Keith writes it this way she got to the point where she couldn't even hold a fork or scratch her own nose by that time both of them were living in the Protestant home and Keith had an apartment and Elma lived in the skilled care facility and for years especially here the last two years Keith uh, she was in hospice Keith was with her day in and day out he took her from her room to his room during the day and he would read to her and pray with her and sing to her and take her out on the patio to enjoy fresh air. He was the hands and feet of Christ to her in countless ways. And the whole time, um, Elma progressively got worse. Keith described that her whole experience as an odyssey through troubled seas. Now, Elma passed in two, November of 2016, so about a year and a half ago now. And after she did, and considering all that he'd been through, most people would have understood if Keith just resigned himself to afternoons of bingo in Clabber in the dining room at the Protestant home. But no, at age 86-ish, Keith wrestled with God again about God's purposes for him at this stage of life. And God won. Keith writes that he had to repent of not being open to another kingdom assignment and agreed to engage in yet another work which was to capture the story of the Odyssey he and Elma navigated that in hopes that others in similar circumstances might be helped. So from his apartment in the Protestant home, he gathered up his journals and all of the notes, he took incredible notes through this whole Odyssey. He produced an incredible story. This spring, uh, he published this book, and it's entitled Meditation Times with Elma, An Odyssey Through the Troubled Seas of Dementia, a love story, a love story. Now, from the Protestant home in Evansville, and challenged by some own, his own physical limitations at this stage of life, Keith is literally impacting the world with his publication. He sent, us, uh, he sent an email out recently describing where in the world this book has now gone. On their trip, here's one writer, one, one of the purchasers of this book. On their trip to Israel, they gave their copy to a fellow tour couple. I suspect that might have been from some of our travelers to Israel. Someone who bought this book and is now in Phoenix said they've loaned a copy to a leader of a local Alzheimer group. Here in Evansville, there's a nursing home that wants to stock copies of this in their facility. In Detroit, there's a priest sharing about how singing together can minister to people who are going through stages of difficult stages of dementia. There are people who took that book and are sharing it with facilities in Oregon, 
and Wisconsin and Atlanta. Imagine that at age 86. God does not put an age limit on fruit-bearing potential. It is not about what you or I can do anyway, right, but what God can do in us and through us. So God is using Hillary to love street kids in Columbia. So God used Dave to touch line minute veteran. So God is still using Keith to bear fruit from the halls of the Protestant home. God can use any one of us in this room to serve his purposes if our hearts are willing. And when that happens, when the people of God are being fruitful, and then, as our buddy Ray Vanderlaan likes to say, then, then the world will know that our God reigns. Come on up, worship team. In our... Um, bulletin or our little uh, sermon outline last week, there was an ending question. And I think it's one that uh, we come back to today. Bears repeating. The question is this. Are you and am I offering Jesus lip service or life service? Take that home. Take that question home with you this week and reflect on it again. Pray with me, please. God, there's no one like you. Open our eyes and our hearts. Show us who you are. Fill our hearts with the goodness and beauty of you so we might become for you the hands, feet, and heart of Christ in this world. Amen.